This is Steve Becker. I've been a district court judge in Reno County, Kansas for 26 years. Uh, following my retirement from the bench, I served uh, six years in the Kansas legislature. I'm Beth White. I spent almost a decade working for criminal justice with parole, and I have a passion for the criminal justice system. And this is Cleared. Hello, Beth. Hi, Dad. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. I, I don't want to go into uh, a lot of details, but I do want our listeners to know that you and I just recently returned from a little road trip. I, yes. I wouldn't say little, but yes, we did have a road trip. You and me, your mother, a.k.a. my wife, and my three grandchildren, I think we covered four thousand miles we did four thousand miles we did with a two-year-old strapped in a car seat yes you think your kids are well behaved until you're in a car with them for nine days majority of that without internet and with yeah some 12-hour days yeah that that was rough the last week and a half of our vacation was rough the last week and a half you're talking about the two days yeah the last day was <laughs> that last day was a little rough it did um, yeah, our turnaround, a turnaround point, uh, was San Francisco and I don't want to, I don't want to show our listeners slides of our vacation, <laughs> but I wish I could show them one because my two year old grandson is now sporting a black and white horizontally striped t-shirt that reads property of Alcatraz. <laughs> and if you know him, it is very fitting. <laughs> very fitting. He has escaped, Suce successfully escaped Alcatraz. Yes, he is the youngest of six and acts acts accordingly. So, Have you caught up on your sleep? Uh, I don't, I think that comes maybe in your 40s or 50s. I don't, you'll have to tell me. So, Or at least when kids go to school. Or college maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Or we'll, we'll you say wait yes. until retirement, because yes. I'm going to all. Have I'm you caught up caught on up. your sleep? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So there's I'm hope. good to go. There's hope eventually. I will one one interesting that's kind of interesting thing that we did that's kind of relates to our podcast is we saw Alcatraz. We did in San Francisco. One thing that struck me when we saw it was how close it was to the San Francisco Bay. It is not a long swim. No, I mean. 
relatively. I mean, I could never make it, but well, it's me, not like swimming the English Channel. No, me, you know, they always have those memes where it talks about people sitting on their couches critiquing professional athletes. Me being my like <laughs> late 30s overweight self being like, oh, I could totally make that swim if I was there. But I feel like I totally could make that swim if I was there. I mean, the waves didn't look that big. I mean, it it probably is, obviously Yeah, but it didn't is, all but... the movies and books always call it shark and Infested waters, freeze freezing shark infested waters. Yes. Yeah, I know the water is very cold, but okay. Apparently, looks are deceiving. Okay, so are we through with our slideshow for I, our listeners? We yes, we probably should be if we want listeners. Yeah, I hope they hang. Yes, I hope they hang with us through that. Anyway, it was a good trip, but <laughs> things happened while we were gone. They did. Okay, let's bring things current with our. Uh, uh, wrongful convictions. Uh, the National Registry of Exoneration says the number is now 3,184. One week ago, um, from when we're recording this, on uh, July 12, Jose Cruz was exonerated of murder. He spent over 26 years in prison. His conviction was out of Cook County, Illinois. Um, so that's, uh, the latest exoneration, um, that I'm aware of, but I want to mention a couple of other cases and the reason I want to mention them because they are also out of Cook County. The names are John Galvin and Arthur Almendarez. They, Beth, they spent both of their co-defendants, it's one case, two co-defendants, they spent 35 years in prison wow. before being exonerated. They were arrested and convicted as teenagers in 1986. The convictions uh, were based upon confessions obtained through torture. Um, and then eventually the judges ruled that uh, there was police conduct. The reason I mention it is because these two um, wrongfully convicted individuals were released July 15. So that was this past Friday. Yeah, so that just happened a few days ago. And that's the case, you know, that came to my attention. And then as I was looking at that one, I found another one from the same day, July 15. Two brothers were released, Juan Hernandez and Rosendo Hernandez. They each spent 25 years in prison. Again, one case, two defendants. These cases I'm mentioning led me to discover that these exonerations are the result of police misconduct of one particular Chicago Police Department detective. One source stated that there have been 25 murder convictions due to the misconduct of, one of this one detective. Has 25 there... just murder cases. And when I started looking into this particular detective, I did a very quick cursory investigation. Uh, maybe we can address this matter in a full episode, but... He, of course, a detective wields a lot of power when a 
when a suspect is arrested, a detective is involved and, uh, yeah, holds a lot of power, and he would threaten and uh, beat uh, the suspects until the, he got a confession. And in many, in many cases, he would wield the same type of power on witnesses. He would threaten witnesses and um, get them to sign things. Uh, there was one witness who did not speak or read English. He was Hispanic, and he spoke only Spanish. And this detective got him to sign a witness statement written in English, and it certainly contained everything the detective wanted it to contain, and got the witness to sign it, threatened him if he didn't sign it, and was, uh, yeah, used some very harsh tactics. All of this coming out of Cook County just this past week. Um, Has has there been any kind of disciplinary actions against the detective? I haven't gotten to that point yet. But it it is costing, it is costing Cook County tens of millions of dollars, compensating like twenty five exonerees. Good grief! Each one of them getting you know around ten million. That's wow. Yeah. One person. One person. Not to mention whatever whoever knows what the actual person the perpetrator if they were to go out and commit other crimes yeah since they weren't caught in the first place because obviously all these men were innocent yeah if if in fact the 25 murders that have now been overturned i guess you can assume there's 25 murderers loose yes anyway that's the news well and a lot of big news yeah and i think from what you just told me that's 120 years Right there. Yeah, on, ju- on just last week. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, and I, and <laughs> I think I say this every episode. We're trying to tell people how frequently this happens. Mm-hmm. Gosh. Okay. Well, what you just talked about with the torture and wrongful confessions is very similar to what we'll be talking about today with the case that we're going to be talking about. Um, it deals with three individuals. I mainly researched one, but we'll talk about the other two as well. But we have one case, three defendants. Correct. Yes. Uh, initially I started looking up Philip Bivens, but in this case, we're also going to talk about Larry Ruffin and Bobby Ray Dixon as well. This whole tragic, horrific series of events took place with the tragic, horrific, horrible murder of Eva Gail Patterson on May 4th, 1979. She was alone with her two kids. Her husband was an offshore oil platform worker. They lived in Mississippi, Forest County to be specific. Her two-year-old was asleep in the other room. Uh, Unfortunately, her four-year-old was present for the entire crime. The man raped her violently and slashed her throat. Eva was able to get out she walked to her neighbor's carport before collapsing and dying the police talked to her four-year-old son luke who said that a bad boy a single man had attacked and killed his mom he described the man as a light-skinned black male with bushy hair 
Apparently, the police had somebody in mind pretty quickly, and immediately they approached Larry Ruffin, the same day, actually. Now, Larry, he was an inmate at a restitution center, which is, this is something that's kind of new to me. And keep in mind, this is in 1979, so we're talking a few years ago, obviously. Uh, Larry had stole some beers from a local store, so he was at a restitution center working to pay back the store for what he stole. That day, they came to him, and they threatened to murder him. They threatened to kill him if he did not confess to these murders. Yeah, that's how strong they approached him. When he did not immediately admit to the murders, they locked him up. They locked him up in a jail cell for two days. They then proceeded to go to other inmates at that restitution center and ask them to implicate Larry. Eventually, somebody did. They implemented Larry because they also, again, told these other inmates if they did not implicate Larry, that they were going to bring false charges on them. Now, I don't know who actually was the one that implicated Larry in the charges, but somebody did. And that's all it took. They charged Larry with the murder and rape of Eva Patterson. Over the next several weeks, Larry was questioned repeatedly about the murder and the rape. He was beat, punched, kicked, slapped. He endured death threats and racial slurs. Eva was white and he was black. He confessed in seven hours. His, go ahead. And I, I read in this part of the investigation um, that his stories, he was confessing, but his stories were just all over the place. Yeah, they were constantly changing. Yeah, they, and uh, that led to more beatings because they wanted... Every time, yeah, every time yeah. he said something that didn't match with the events, they would beat him until he would say the right thing. So his, Jeez. every time his story changed, they would beat him. And his story kept changing. They would take him to the crime scene, and if he said something wrong, they would continue to beat him. The only thing that remained the same in his stories was that he was the one that raped and murdered her, her and that he did it alone. So after those two weeks passed, fairly quickly after those two weeks passed, he almost immediately recanted his confession and said that he was forced to confess by the police and that he was forced to do so under threats of physical violence. And from that point on, he maintained his innocence. As his trial date loomed over, there was really no physical evidence that I could find. He obviously, well, not obviously, he didn't meet the physical description that the kid had given the police. He was tall, he was very dark-skinned, and he had short hair, so he did not meet the physical description that the boy had given the police that night. So the police went out and were trying to find some more evidence. That's when they interviewed Bobby Ray Dixon. Bobby Ray Dixon was also another inmate at that restitution center. Now, I'm not quite sure on Bobby Ray Dixon's mental capacity, a lot of the research I was reading was from the 70s, so the PC factor was not completely there. But what I can tell you was when he was a child, he was kicked in the head by a horse and suffered seizures the majority of his life. Some of the material I read said that he was mentally diminished. Some said that he just suffered seizures. To what capacity, I don't know. But according to the police, Bobby said that he was with Larry that night and that Larry killed Miss Patterson and that he and a man named Philip Bevins were there as well. Of course, there's no records at all of this interview anywhere. Imagine that. Hmm. 
So I also another must have forgotten to type a report or record. Exactly. Um, I can't find any connection between Philip Bevins and Bobby Ray Dixon either. The only connection that I was able to find is that Philip Bevins, who is a California native, his wife was related to Larry Ruffins, Larry Ruffins' girlfriend to be specific. Philip Bevins is the person who I originally researched for this story. He's actually, like I said, he's a California native. He was only in Mississippi for less than a year. Unfortunately for him, that year happened to include May 4th, 1979, the date of the horrific murder of Eva Patterson. He had already returned to California a few months prior. So imagine his surprise just a few days later when police from Mississippi showed up at his door and placed him under arrest. He said later that he had never been on an airplane before when the police escorted him on the plane. He thought for sure they were going to kill him and throw him out the plane. If that gives you any kind of indication on the tone or what was being said between him and law enforcement from Mississippi. Once they got Philip back to Mississippi, Hattiesburg to be specific, they told him all about what Bobby Ray had told them about the night of the crime, and they gave him a lie detector test. Of course, again, no evidence, no record of any kind of lie detector test anywhere, but they told him he failed the lie detector test and that he was going to be in the electric chair if he didn't admit and plead guilty. He needed to go along with Bobby Ray Dixon's story. Philip was scared for his life. So, despite not knowing Bobby Ray Dixon or the victim, he went along with the story. Something up until his dying days, he said he regrets. He regrets. He said he should have been stronger, but he wasn't. They showed him pictures of the crime scene and asked what he remembered. Again, they threatened him with physical violence, and acted on it when he answered wrongly. In the end, he ended up backing up the story. Yeah, uh, showing him photographs of the crime scene kind of suggests what he is to remember. Yes, for sure. And keep in mind, the poor little boy that was witness to his murder, his mother's murder, said that there was one person there, not three, and that the one person that was there was a light-skinned black man with long hair, long bushy hair, not three men, definitely not one dark-skinned man with short hair, so none of this is fitting anyways. So this all occurred just shortly before Larry's trial. Of course, the only thing they really have are the three confessions, despite Larry immediately recanting his. Philip went on stand and he testified that he was there with Bobby and Larry and that Larry did commit the rape and killed Eva Gail Patterson. That Blevins recanted? Blevins. Philip Blevins went on and testified that he was there. Bobby Ray Dixon recanted. When it was his turn to testify, Bobby Ray Dixon, he's the one that was kicked in the head as a child by the horse and that had some sort of diminished capacity. I don't know to what extent. When it was his turn to testify against Larry, he got on and immediately started contradicting his original testimony about being present at the crime. And keep in mind, it was Bobby Dixon who originally fingered Philip 
as being a part of this crime. He's the one that brought him into it in the first place. He's the one that tied these three together. Yeah. I just want to interject it based upon my experience. No one likes recanted statements in the courtroom. Yeah. I mean, that's not surprising. I mean, even outside the courtroom, you always question recanted statements, but yeah, it's such uh, it's such an easy target, you know, for the prosecutor to cross-examine, you know, by asking, well, well, help me with this. I'm a little confused about when you're telling the truth and when you're lying. Now, yeah. can you help me understand that? You do lie, right? And And it just, it never goes well for someone to recant their testimony. And I guess that's understandable, but it's it's also unfortunate. When I think us looking out, I mean, obviously someone who's looking at the criminal justice system who's not aware that all of this stuff happens and it happens so regularly where, where it's true, law enforcement beat people, they threaten to murder people, like all this stuff happens. Unfortunately, it happens. Um, when you don't have that perspective that this isn't just made up stories that are being told, that it's really facts that have happened. I read a very interesting article when I was um, doing research for this case where when you put an individual in a room where they're being immediately shut down, told they're lying, told that we know you did this, being threatened with violence, being threatened with physical harm, actually incurring physical harm, Sometimes, oftentimes, when it comes down to it, the only way out they have is confessing. That's that's their only out. That's the only way they're going to get out of the situation, and they recognize that. And law enforcement knows that, and that's the route that they that's the route they take. That's the only that's the only out they have, and that's a lot of times how wrongful confessions happen. And they're trained to do this. Yeah, they're trained to get a confession and different tools they can use and the different methods you go about it, just like you touched on, Beth. But still, I think the universal reaction to false confessions is, my God, I would never confess to a crime Mm. I didn't commit. It's that whole bullshit thing. Yeah. Yeah, that whole, I would never, ever do that well it happens to some pretty strong people yeah and and you've already touched on it beth about uh there's ways that they can just wear you down and finally you're ready to throw in the towel you want to surrender and the only way you can surrender is doing what they say yeah i'm impressed with anybody who doesn't confess especially when you consider the amount of hours that some of these people are in these rooms and i mean i've i've talked to my best friend for instance kinsey she's not necessarily familiar with the legal system and she wasn't aware that she law enforcement could lie to you i explained to her they could tell you whatever they need to tell you to get whatever they want out of you they could tell you that i'm in the other room telling them that you committed these crimes they don't, that doesn't have to be true for them to tell that to you. They can tell you whatever they need to get the confession out of you. And I've, I've touched on this before in other episodes, but law enforcement is trained to lie effectively. 
I mean, that's part of their training when to become a certified law enforcement officer. Here in Hutchinson, we have the uh, training center, mm-hmm. the law enforcement training center. And that's where um, people come from all over the state to get their training here. And they're trained to lie effectively because that is a tool um, that can be used to obtain what you're after. Yeah. I don't know of any other entity in our culture where the members are trained to lie. Okay, I, I want to assure my listeners that I went to law school we were not trained to lie (laughs) lawyers have not been trained to lie legislators I can tell you (laughs) we are not trained to lie law enforcement officers are that just you know what's wrong with this picture some of the states I think some I think only three have passed legislation that says Law enforcement officers cannot lie to a juvenile during interrogation. Wonderful, wonderful. That's but only three have passed that. Yeah. It should be universal. And then let's make it to adults as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean anyway. Okay. So, Bobby Dixon, it's his turn. And he's the one that's tied in uh, Philip Bellevins as well into the crime. It's his turn to get on stand. Immediately, he starts contradicting himself and saying that he didn't even know what the victim looked like. He tells um, all the jurors that when he was young, he was kicked in the head by a horse and he was frequently to have seizures uh, and eventually stated that he was not there that night of the crime. And he said, I don't have the right mind. My mind comes and goes, and I don't like to see nobody take away, took away for nothing they ain't done. Despite Bobby Dixon recanting his confession and his fingering of Larry Ruffin, uh, Larry Ruffin is convicted of rape and murder. The jury is hung on whether or not to pursue the death penalty, so Larry Ruffin is sentenced to life in prison. Now, because Philip Blevins and Bobby Dixon pled guilty and provided testimony against Larry Ruffin, they were not afforded opportunities towards the appellate system because they pled guilty. Larry Ruffin did go through the appeals process. I didn't spend a whole lot of time researching his, but apparently his appeal process is quite interesting. Um, His was originally reversed at the lower level, and then it was heard at the Supreme Court level, and his conviction was reinstated and then sent back down to the lower level where it was reversed again. I mean, it it went back and forth. Um, Unfortunately for him, he did not see, he did not live to see his exoneration. He died while was in prison. It's kind of interesting because originally when I was doing research, it said that he died by heart attack. So I took that at face value. And then I ran across something that said he died or was killed by an electric shock, which sounds a little sketchy to me. And then something else said he died in a prison accident. So I, I don't know what's up with that. That sounds a little fishy to me. 
Um, he died when he was 42. He was 19 when he was arrested for the crime, for the rape and murder of Miss Patterson. So that leaves Philip Bevins and Bobby Ray Dixon. They're the ones, both of the ones that pled guilty. They were given life sentences in exchange for their testimony against Larry Ruffin. Um, Bobby Ray Dixon, he's the one I had talked about who suffered from seizures. He apparently, his seizures were so frequent and so severe that they eventually gave him a batting helmet while he was incarcerated so he wouldn't injure himself. He, um, well, not that prison is ever pleasant for anybody, but it was particularly rough for them. They were victims and assaulted numerous, numerous times during their incarcerations. They suffered injuries and illnesses as a result. I don't feel like we need to go into that. I'm sure you could use your imaginations on what type of diseases and illnesses they encountered based off of that. Uh, Bobby Ray Dixon was able to submit an application to the New Orleans Innocence Project that was done so by a corrections officer submitted on his behalf. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, the, well, that's a yeah kind of a light in this dark yeah. tunnel. Yeah, the a corrections officer submitted to New Orleans Innocence Project. They took the case because there was DNA evidence and the high high probability of false confessions. The Innocence Project of New Orleans obtained a DNA sample from the body, and with the permission of the DA, it was ran in June 2010. The testing that was performed not only excluded the three men, but found a hit with a known rapist in the area and fellow Mississippi correction inmate Andrew Harris. Andrew Harris just happened to live a couple blocks away from the victim at the time of the crime. So not only were they all innocent, but the perpetrator was already incarcerated. Yeah, I think it's important to point out here that uh, this crime occurred before DNA had made its entry into the criminal justice system. Yes. I think that occurred um, approximately 1983. We started to see DNA evidence as far as ruling out someone or uh, uh, confirming uh, someone that started in the early 80s 83 i think so this you know the first thing when i read this i think this dna evidence was there for 30 years and uh yes it was but at the time of trial that wasn't important i mean they didn't have that technology well so they didn't even work with that but Innocence Projects goes back and says, is there anything in the evidence that might have DNA? And from my research... Oh, yeah, we have semen. Apparently, that was an issue with Larry Ruffin's appeals, too, is that they weren't, they did not... In, in Larry Ruffin's appeals, they had a, a expert witness come on and talk about how they could have possibly excluded him, ex, excluded him with this whole secretor, non-secretor thing. But the police department failed to refrigerate, um, I think maybe his boxers or something, dealing with the semen, but they failed to do so. So that became an issue during his appeals. And it was whether or not they acted in, 
I can't remember the legal terminology used, like malice with not um, refrigerating the evidence. Your good faith. Yes. So that became an issue in his appeals, I know. Um, the whole issue of saving the preserving the evidence I found in one really discreet article, like seven pages deep in my Google search. And so I'm going to mention this with very wispy language here because I don't have a whole lot to back it up, but I did found one source that said it was one particular, um, judge in that county that determined very early on that it was highly important that in all um, high crime profile cases that they preserve all evidence regardless of the length of period of the crime or how old it was. They preserve all evidence in all uh, violent crimes no matter what. So that's was the reason that they still had evidence that was 30 years old for what, that case. What great judicial yes. foresight. yes. Because I remember thinking that too, like, why would... Because at that point, Larry Ruffin, the one that who was com- convicted of the murder, had already been deceased at that point. So I, what are the likelihood that they would hold on to evidence for the person, the perpetrator that they believe to have committed the crime has already been deceased for eight years at this point? You know what I mean? So, wow. So they identify this Andrew Harris... Um, very briefly about him, he was indicted for the rape and murder in December, 2010. I found that a trial was set on July 23rd, 2012. Uh, I looked up on the Mississippi, Mississippi corrections page as of today, it only shows one conviction. So I'm not real sure what happened there. There's nothing after that trial set for July 23rd, 2012. Okay. What I was able to find Beth was, uh, that Andrew Harris pleaded not guilty. Uh, he was, of course, indicted, and a trial was set for 2012. But the case has since been passed into the inactive cases, and Harris will not stand trial unless his release from prison on that previous conviction uh, becomes imminent. So it's kind of like Wayne. Like, why waste resources. court's resources? Because, you know, court's time is so important. Why waste court resources when the man is imprisoned for life and will probably never be released? So do you think they take into... And then the other side of that coin is no one has been convicted for this horrendous murder and rape. So do you think they take into account, do you think they ask, Luke is the son, the four-year-old little boy who witnessed his mom's rape and murder. Do you think they asked the family their thoughts on that before they God, chose to pursue or not pursue? So. I want to think that they did. Is I don't know. Still, I don't have an answer for that. But still, listen, they have an open case. And so he serves in prison. Let's say he, he's serving a life sentence. So let's say he serves life by dying in prison, and then the case case is closed. Cases, what's the deal? I don't know. I uh, I think a strong argu- argument can be made. Come on, use the court resources, 
and bring this case to a well, final conclusion. The DNA work's already done. <laughs> There's that cost out of the way. There's what? The okay. DNA work's already done. <laughs> That's true. I don't think it'll be tough. I don't know. I don't know either. So um, in 2010, a circuit court judge threw out the convictions on Bobby Ray Dixon and Philip Blevins. Um, at that hearing, Bobby Ray Dixon was given medical parole. Uh, like I said earlier, he's the one that suffered from seizures, frequent seizures. He was diagnosed with lung cancer and granted parole in August of that year. Uh, when he was released, he visited Larry Ruffin's grave the day he was released. Um, he sang hymns and prayed. Unfortunately for him, he was only alive five weeks after his exoneration, after he was released, passing in November of that year. His younger brother, Jerry, said that he had no resentment at all for the years lost, the 30 years lost of his life and said that all is forgiven. The only thing he wanted to do after his release was to be baptized again and to ride a bike, both of which he got to do. He spent the rest of his short weeks with his family. Philip Bevins, on the other hand, was alive for three years after he was exonerated. When he was exonerated, he was released carrying all of his earthly belongings with him in a pillowcase. Two Bibles, a pair of flip-flops, shampoo and socks that's all he had to show for his 50 some odd years of life excuse me his 60 some odd years of life his attorneys took him to lunch before they took him to new orleans where he planned to stay um, in housing that was specifically designed for exonerees he hoped to find a job gardening and was thinking about looking up the woman he was planning on marrying before he was arrested I like this. He said that it is important to have people around you. They keep you from thinking about things too much and they serve as an alibi just in case. Like I said, he lived three years after being released. Um, he was married at the time of his death. He was a mentor in the community. He was an avid gardener. He loved to fish. All of the children in the community loved him. Um, really well respected and his community and really well liked all of these men died incredibly young larry ruffin again died in prison at the age of 42 by an air quote prison accident of electric shock i don't know how that happens philip bevins 63 and bobby ray dixon 53 there was um, a federal lawsuit that was filed in forest county that i got a lot of information dealing with the physical the verbal and I guess it's verbal attacks that were made during the interrogation phase of this case where they were threatened physically, emotionally, all the death threats, the racial slurs. Uh, they were awarded $16.5 million in total by the county that they had, the county had to pay out due to the law enforcement actions during the investigation uh, phase of this case. Um, again, unfortunately, none of these men lived long enough to see any of that compensation. All of that uh, went to the estate, their estates or their families. One other thing that I think it's important to note, Andrew Harris, we had already mentioned him. He's the actual perpetrator of the crime. 
He was arrested two years later, having committed another violent rape in that same county. Two years after this rape. Yes. Yes. After Eva Peterson's rape and murder, he committed another violent rape two years later in the exact same county. And that's what sent him to prison for life. Yes. Yep. Um. Luke, the four-year-old little boy who saw his mom's violent murder and the rest of the family were present for the exoneration hearing for Philip Bevins and Bobby Ray Dixon. Oh, I guess something else that's kind of interesting. Larry Ruffin, the person that was actually convicted and charged of the rape and murder, the one who died in prison, was posthumously exonerated of the crime. Um... One article I said I read said that he would be the second that would be posthumously exonerated due to DNA evidence, and there were several others that said he'd be one of only a handful of people posthumously exonerated. Because apparently, is that if, nationwide? Yes, apparently it's not a priority to exonerate exonerate people posthumously. No, it's. I mean, wouldn't the court just say, "Well, that's a moot issue." Yeah, apparently so. But it's not, really. It's not. But that allowed his family also to receive some of the compensation that was awarded to the families. Exactly. For all the wrongdoing that was done by law enforcement. Yeah, one of the things I want to look at just briefly is these two of the defendants that entered pleas of guilty to a crime they didn't commit. Um I think our listeners should understand that 95%, that's 95% of the felony cases in this country are resolved by a plea of guilty. 95%. And that clearly shows, that clearly shows that defendants are more likely to accept deals to avoid risking more serious charges and more serious punishment even if they didn't commit the crime. Yeah. And this comes in, this is a really big deal when it comes to the death penalty because if the prosecutors can threaten the death penalty, They, it is frequent in, in capital cases, it is frequent to, for the prosecution to come to the defendant with counsel, of course, defendants having counsel, but will come to the defendant with, if you plead guilty we'll take to it. this capital murder, we'll take death off the table. Yeah. We won't request the death penalty. If you take this to trial, I'm going to ask the jury to come back with the death sentence. Wow. And that's exactly what they did with Philip and Bobby. And yes, and what they got as a result are false confessions Mm -hmm. because they didn't want death. What's wrong with this criminal justice system? 95% of the cases plead out because they don't want to risk, uh, yeah, being murdered, higher. 
and and that reminded me of something just okay this probably should be a footnote or something but this, this whole dynamic in the criminal justice system reminded me of something that I saw on our local news just recently. We have a um, primary election in three weeks, maybe. First part of August, the state of Kansas has a primary election. And I was listening to an interview of one of three candidates that's seeking the position of Kansas Attorney General. And he was asked about the death penalty. The death penalty doesn't really come up much, I don't think, in political circles, but it needs to. I mean, in my view, every candidate should be asked about the death penalty and where they stand on the death penalty. This particular candidate was asked about the death penalty, and, and his response was, quote, as a thoughtful, compassionate Christian, the death penalty is tragic, end quote. And then, of course, he also immediately follows it up. My career as a prosecutor, I know the death penalty is necessary. Whoa. What are your priorities here? He said, it's, he said the death penalty is a tool that prosecutors can use. Oh, absolutely it is. And he says, I don't want to take a tool away from prosecutors. Because that tool, that tool is used to obtain confessions. And that, it, that's a good thing. Because 95% of the cases will plead if we use this tool. But Beth, it leads, to, yes, it leads to obtaining confessions, but it leads to false confessions. Yeah, I think that's the argument you have. To, I mean, what are you willing to risk? Obviously, it works. It's extremely effective. Is it? Are you? Oh yes, it's effective. Are you? Is it more important that you get a confession and risk one innocent person going to prison or having one guilty person going free? I mean, what's the priority here? That's, and I, I remember one law enforcement saying, okay, I don't think it should shock our listeners that I'm a very vocal advocate to abolish the death penalty in Kansas. So let's get that out there in transparency. And I heard a law enforcement officer tell me, if we didn't, he looked at me like in shock and said, don't you understand if we didn't have the death penalty, we might have to try all those cases? And I'm thinking, yeah, let's try them. Let's try them and see if the evidence comes to the level of beyond a reasonable doubt 
and then maybe I can accept this thing. I'll never accept the death penalty, but then I can more readily accept the conviction. But it was just a shock to him that they would have to try these capital cases. Well, we wouldn't have capital cases. They would have to try these cases, and they wouldn't have that tool to in which to get a conviction. I don't know. I get worked up about it. The criminal justice system is imperfect because we're human. We make mistakes. There are mistakes made in the criminal justice system. You know, Beth, the only, the only absolute certainty that exists in the criminal justice system is an execution. That's certain. We killed him. We know he's dead. That's 100% absolute certainty. That's the only certainty there is. Because verdicts of guilty aren't absolutely certain. They're supposed to be beyond a reasonable doubt. That's not certainty. We don't expect certainty anywhere in our criminal justice system except when it's time to impose the punishment. And then the punishment is absolute certainty. I have said time and time again, how can we impose the absolute certainty of death when we do not require the absolute certainty of guilt. It's wrong. Okay, soapbox. I was going to say I'm stepping off, but I'm not. I'm staying on it. Okay. I think I'm through. That's cleared. Thank you for following us. Um, if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, concerns, reach out to us on Facebook at Cleared Podcast or Instagram at Cleared Pod. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, thank you. Thank you. Assault City Sound Production.